three weeks ago, uh, we kicked off, well, technically four now, uh, we kicked off our study in Mark's gospel in a lead up to Christmas, um, but we weren't technically doing <laughs> Mark's gospel. As some of you felt, we, we looked at Mark 1 verse 1, where uh, Mark introduces his gospel as uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and we spent three weeks looking at Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, but the way that we did that was by jumping over to other gospels and other verses. And so um, we're, we haven't really technically been in Mark, but today we actually get there, and I'm really excited for that because um, Mark's gospel is just fantastic. I mean, this is a first century biography in the life and teachings of Jesus. Um, it was the, uh, most scholars hold it as the first gospel that we have. And so most um, historians that are trying to understand Jesus, whether Christian or, or secular, uh, Mark's gospel is kind of the big one that we've really got to understand and study because what we find in here is some of the earliest writings uh, pertaining to the life of Jesus. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, that Mark's gospel is really um, him sitting down in the city of Rome with the apostle Peter and kind of putting together the story based off of Peter's and then him filling in with other eyewitness accounts, this story. And so it's just a Man, I just, I love the Bible. It's so cool how this stuff comes together. And so Mark's developed this, this narrative, this story, that even he will um, say he's not seeking to necessarily do a perfectly chronological story. He's seeking to put together a story in such a way that you see who Jesus is as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, and so what we're going to be doing as we look over really kind of the first chapter over the next six or seven weeks is... Um, inviting ourselves just to question and ponder, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Um, I mean, as we talked about with Michaela, that this is someone who she identified as a follower of Jesus. Some of you that don't want to put Christian on Facebook as your, like, religious beliefs, you'll put, like, follower of Jesus so you sound a little bit cooler. Uh, but we talk about being a follower of Jesus, and, and yet... When we get down to kind of brass tacks, what does that mean? Oftentimes, um, it, we're really just using it as a synonym for Christian. We're just kind of like, oh, I don't, it just sounds better because Christian, you know, we now apparently that has uh, implications on the way that I vote or the way that I think or the way that I dress or the way that I eat even. And so we just kind of say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. When we say following Jesus, what we're getting to is the earliest title that Christians used for themselves. Do you know that? Like long before Christians called uh, themselves Christians, uh, Christians identified themselves, the, the term that they used where they were followers of the way. Followers of the way. Christian was actually a title that was not given by Christians to Christians. It was a derogatory title that the Romans and the Greeks put on Christians. It was a way of making fun of them. And Christians kind of just went, okay, we'll just take that name on for ourselves. And, and yet, the earliest thing that we see throughout the book of Acts is the earliest title, the way that Christians refer to themselves, was as followers of the way. To follow Jesus is to be a follower of the way. And this idea of being a follower of the way, this language of the way, it shows up twice in our passage today. In Mark's 16 chapter gospel, he uses this word way 15 times as an analogy for a relationship with Jesus, for following Jesus is its life that's happening on the way. It's one of the book's major themes. Way, uh, Eugene Peterson puts it, we'll put it this way and then we can jump into the text. Eugene Peterson writes, Way and its synonyms were familiar to every Jew, especially because of their frequency in the Psalms, where way was not only the path that we walk on, but the way that we walk on the path. Way is not only a route that we take, but the way that we go on the way, whether by foot or bike or automobile. The way that we talk, 
the way that we use our influence, the way that we treat one another, the way we raise our children, the way we read, the way we worship, the way we vote, the way we garden, the way we ski, the way we feel, the way we eat, and on and on endlessly, the various and accumulated ways that characterize our lives. And so when we come to the gospel and we find this language of being a follower of the way, as we'll see today, is that we're not just talking about following a way being the, the, the destination to which I'm going, but the very way in which I'm walking on that road. And, and what we see coming out of the Gospel of Mark, specifically in our passage today, is that to be a follower of Jesus is to be a follower of the way of Jesus. Not simply the destination of Jesus, but living in such a way, gardening. I love that Eugene Peterson includes that. Skiing, voting, living in such a way that the way that I'm walking on the road of Jesus is a way like Jesus walked. That I'm thinking through and I'm bringing Jesus' personality into my personality, into my perspective and my giftings and my city and my neighborhood and my family and where I find myself. And so this is the greater concept of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's to be a follower in the way of Jesus. And so why don't we just get into Mark, and we'll begin to kind of see some of this come together. Look with me in Mark chapter 1. We're going to be beginning in verse 2. Um, we have Bibles in the back if you need to borrow one, or you can pick up one of the little journals, and it's, it's right there for us. But uh, we'll begin reading this, and it's going to be on the slides behind me. So let's read Mark 1, verses 2. I'll quit talking about the way, and we'll just read about it. Verse 2 of chapter 1, Mark as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Let's pray. Uh, Father, what we just acknowledge uh, in the midst of today is uh, a desire for us to live the sort of life where the priorities that truly matter will be the ones that show up in our day-to-day. God, when we talk about what's important to us, it's so easy for us to spout off what we feel like should be our priorities. But when we look at our calendar, when we look at our, um, when we look at our money, when we look at our time, God, we just, it's clear to see that, we, uh, that our priorities tend to be different than what we claim is the most important. And so I pray that what you might do today as we set out into 2020 uh, is, is in, let this passage invite us into a new way, the sort of thing that we're waiting for and anticipating. Help us. God, would you speak through me? Would you speak through this text? Would John's words and call to repentance ring true with each and every one of us today? In your name we pray, amen. 
Well, there's Mark 1, uh, the opening verses of this story, um, just as a roadmap for where we're going today. Uh, we have an invitation before us with this series of following Jesus, uh, specifically to set out with this language of the way, as we're going to see. Uh, if you break down the text, it, it happens pretty easily. Uh, in the verse, uh, first two verses of verse 2 and verse 3, there's an anticipation and an expectation for the way that we see that's forming. It's where Mark's kind of giving his prologue to the book. He moves into John the Baptist, his ministry in life, as a preparation for the way. He's making ready the, the path, the way that's going to come. And then finally, in the baptism of Jesus, we see uh, a receptivity, a reception of the way. The text breaks down into these three forms. And so what we're going to do is just kind of think through today. What does it mean to expect this way? And what is the way? We'll get into that a little bit more. And then we're going to look at John the Baptist and his preparation for the way, which will be an invitation for you and me to prepare for a new work, a new way of God in our lives. And then finally, what it means to receive it. So let's first set out with this expectation, this expecting the way. Uh, in those first two verses, depending on the Bible that you're looking at, you might kind of have it, it looks like it might be set inside and indented, or it says even clearly, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then he gives us these quotations from not just Isaiah, but Exodus and Malachi. He gives us this uh, the prologue uh, for the entirety of this book. This is, as it were, the kind of before we set out on the story that I'm going to tell you, there are some nece necessary things that you need to have in your imagination, in your mind, as it were, in order for this story to make sense. And what he gives us is this prologue. And this prologue is not a, a dead art. Uh, most of us um, have seen uh, the most iconic uh, prologue of all time. Um, or if you're me, you've seen it twice over the past few weeks. Or if you're Kyle Young, you've seen it four times. Uh, right? How many times have you seen it now? Yeah, four? All right, cool. Four times, the most iconic. You can throw it up here. Um, image in the world. And so um, I found a uh, Star Wars opening crawl generator, um, and I had a lot of fun with that this week. Um, but as you can see, um, that's that, as silly as it is, this is what's happening uh, in these first kind of two verses, is in verse one, it was kind of the title, right? It was like, then it's like good news, right, instead of Star Wars. And then the title is like, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then the opening crawl comes up, and it's like, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my... Every single time you watch the Star Wars movie, and other movies have prologues, but they're not as good, uh, <laughs> is what it's doing is it's, it's filling in the... You're, you're starting in a story that is already going. And so I'm bringing you in. That's what made A New Hope, back when it came out, you know, 40 years ago now, so good was that we didn't come to, like, there was no conflict, and for the first time, we're getting introduced to some story. We're coming into a story that's already happening, and so that opening crawl is kind of a, we're setting up the conflict of the story. Who's the good guys? Who's the bad guys? What are you waiting for? What's the anticipation, the expectation? And that's exactly what Mark does in his prologue, is he's calling back all of this language where he's helping you as uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're Greek, maybe you're not a Jewish person, or maybe you are a Jew, but you don't know how to read the story of Jesus. He gives this kind of opening crawl that helps you go, okay, I'm beginning to see how this all fits together. This is what his prologue work is doing. And what he does is he gives us these three quotations from the Old Testament, Exodus 23:20, Malachi 3, verse 1, and Isaiah 43. That, those little, behold, I send my messenger before your face, and da-da-da-da. This is Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah 
all put together. Two things he's doing in the prologue through quoting these. The first thing he's doing is he's, he's calling for you to understand the story he's about to tell, the story about Jesus and who he is as a continuation to the story of the Old Testament, the story of the Jewish scriptures, the story of exodus and exile and kings and prophets and priests and sacrificial systems. He's going, for you to understand the story of Jesus, you have to understand as it is written in the prophets, what the expectation was. I mean, simply put, uh, this is kind of... uh, like the prologue, he's giving this kind of, you know, when, whenever you watch a new season of a show, most often what you get uh, before the show starts is this kind of previously on, right? And then you get this kind of weird mix match, like, like recap of everything that's gone on so that whether you've read it or seen it or you know what's going on or maybe you don't and you're over at your friend's house and you don't know why you're here to watch like episode four of some show you've never seen before, is you're at least getting some of these little highlight clips so that as you hit play on the next episode, you know what's going on. And that's what he's doing here. He's bringing together this language which is going for you to understand this new season, this new episode, as it were, in the story of God previously on. There was an expectation and an anticipation that the prophets were setting for a specific work. And that specific work that he notes by calling from this, uh, by, by ascribing this to Isaiah and quoting from Malachi and Exodus is this idea and hope, the conflict of the last season, was an anticipation for this new exodus. Now, exodus, for it to be new, that means that there's a first one. The first exodus, uh, Israel found themselves as a people enslaved to Egypt um, with big bad Pharaoh um, on top and, and demanding all from them. And, you know, God sends Moses, let my people go, right? And Isaiah, you know, Isaiah, uh, Uh, Pharaoh says no, and we've got all the plagues, right? God is mighty victorious. He leads them out into the wilderness. We've got the Red Sea parting. It's the whole craziness that happens. Leads them through the wilderness, through the Jordan, into the promised land. There's this exodus movement out from slavery through the wilderness, through the Jordan, into the promised land where they can be the people of God. First exodus. But then after that story in the Old Testament, and this is my previously on, trying to summarize what Isaiah is getting at, is over the course of the story, though they have the promised land, though they have God's law, that over the course of time, there is a dwindling of uh, obedience and faithfulness to God. Where a desire to uh, maybe look better in the global scale of all the nations leads them to idolatry. Or kings taking on wife after wife after wife. Kings um, committing at best adultery, if not something quite worse in King David. The things get worse, led not just by kings, but by their people. Idolatry and sin leads to chaos and destruction. And then exile, going out into Babylon and Assyria. And even though they get to come home, they're still under the boot of Rome. And it leads Israel looking back at the Exodus, saying, even though we're here in the promised land, we're back from exile, we're still kind of in exile. Things are not as they should be. Our hearts are not connecting into the way of God as they should be. It seems impossible for us to follow and be the people of God that even we may desire to be when we're at our best, all we have is a desire. And so you know what we really need? We need a new exodus. Something led not just by Moses or not just by an angel of God, but but by God himself to lead us to a promised land, not just to give us the law, but to, to, to conform our hearts into the sort of people that can be the people that we know God is calling us to be. This is the conflict and the expectation from, you know, previously on, the last season. 
Is Israel back home but still not feeling at home and wondering when is God going to come and do something and change us so that we can be the people that we know we want to be? And so Isaiah, in having this, you know, opening crawl, is, is he's saying, it's happening. The new exodus is coming. And it's going to be led by this another prophet, this prophet supreme, who he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah continues on, and he talks about how this one that's going to come is he's going to fill in valleys, and he's going to level the mountains. All of the things that make traveling the way difficult, it's going to become a highway where you can just, like, hit on cruise control. Maybe not, but... And so the anticipation is built, a new exodus, a deliverance not just for Israel but for all of humanity that brings us back to God and to the garden, even as it were. When you think about Jesus and what he's come to do, I mean, what, what, what are you prone to think of? What language and imagery comes to mind about Jesus? No doubt for most of us growing up in uh, American context, for those of you that grew up in the church or even around the church or even at a distance, the language that you saw, maybe the billboards that you saw was this language of Jesus being a, a substitute. Jesus died in my place for my sins. He got God's wrath so that I could get God's love. And that's true. Or maybe Jesus as in his cross and death, an, an, ex, an example of what true love looks like, self-sacrificial love. And that's true. But we need to ensure, just in the kaleidoscope of what Jesus has come to do, we include this language of new exodus. That Jesus is this going to be this new and awaited Moses, this new and awaited angel of God that's going to lead us through the wilderness back into a relationship with God. But more on that in a minute. So back to the prologue, though. We've got, you know, the letters flying through space. Behold, I send my messenger. And then with each Star Wars movie, we then take from the prologue and we pan onto the action, right? Whether it's a new hope and we've got, you know, the Tantive Four going and then the giant Star Destroyer that goes overhead, right? And they're shooting back and forth at each other. We're right into the action, right? What happens here is, is what does he do in verse uh, four? Is we have the letters go over, you know, and then the, the camera zooms down from space, down onto earth, down into Palestine, down in Jerusalem, down into the wilderness, down into the Jordan River, and it like pans onto this like weird bearded, like camel haired guy, right? John the Baptist appeared, is what it says in verse four. And so what, what happens is we're waiting for this anticipation. We're waiting for this, uh, someone to lead this new thing. And, and the camera comes down and it focuses on John. And Mark gives all of these crazy descriptions. Mark describes John and what he looks like more than uh, Mark ever describes what Jesus looks like, which I think is funny. But he describes him as this person who, uh, let's see, what all does he do? We talk about where he's at. He's in the wilderness, specifically in the Jordan River, which connects us to the story of the Exodus, Right? They came through the wilderness, through the Jordan, and the promised land, and now we're going back to the Jordan in the wilderness. So there's a story of the Exodus connecting there. We talk about him being uh, wearing camel hair and a leather belt, right? If you go back and read, uh, I think it's 2 Kings 18. Um, I forgot to put it in my notes. But it's so funny. Uh, Elijah comes to talk to the king, and uh, he can't get a, a, a chance to meet with him, and so Elijah goes his way. And then uh, one of the stewards comes to the king, and they're like, oh, hey, somebody came to talk to you, but we don't know who it is. And he's like, well, what does he look like? Oh, he had a leather belt. Oh, that's Elijah. <laughs> like, that was his, like, calling card uh, was a leather belt. And so Mark calls out attention to this because he's wanting to highlight for you, oh, there's a new, there's a new Elijah. There's a new prophet going on here. The wilderness in the Jordan River. Oh, there's a new 
There's a new exodus that's coming. There's this prophet supreme where he's getting people from Jerusalem and all of Judea. He's successful. The language is this language of he's like he's a prophet supreme. He's the greatest prophet yet. He's got success unlike any of the prophets did, but he's still wearing the clothes. He's eating the honey. He's munching on the locusts, which I guess is like the new form of protein because um, meat is uh, heating up the world and we're all going to die. And so we eat bug chips now. Um, I have friends that like, that's their Instagram story every week is like some new bug food they're eating. Um, yeah, our, <laughs> our lives have become like fear factor. Um, I don't know where I am. Uh, so anyway, all, all this to do is why Mark's describing this is he, he wants to connect the, the floating letters in space, the prologue that we just got, to then sitting on Mark where we go, oh, Mark's the guy, or Mark, John the Baptist is the guy. The guy that all the prophets were saying was going to come and prepare the way, this is him. It's this weird camel-haired, belt-wearing, locust-eating, honey-drinking guy. This is him. He's the prophet supreme. He's the one that's come to prepare the way, to level the mountains and fill in the valleys so that the way of God might be level. There's a new exodus on the horizon. And so what does it look like to prepare the way for this new thing for God to come in? Well, what does it look like? John appeared. It looks like baptism and repentance and confession of sins. To prepare a new way, to anticipate some new work of God, it takes repentance and confession of sin. It takes baptism. Repentance as an idea gets bad press these days specifically because of um, people yelling about who God does or doesn't hate, um, which the only language that we really get about hate in the Bible for God is people who think they know who God hates. Um, repent simply means, regardless of all the bad press, repentance, it's just, it simply means to change your mind. When you hear the word repent, it's, it's this word in the Greek, metanoia. It's this changing of your mind from, I was thinking this way, but now I'm thinking this way. It's a pivot of the mind and from the heart, which leads to a change in the life. Now, why I say that is repentance tends to be this language that we use. The image that we have is like old Catholic priests who are like, you know, lashing their backs because, you know, they thought a dirty thought at dinner or whatever, or they ate, you know, an extra helping of chocolate. And so now they've got to, they've got to repent. They've got to prove how sorry they are. Or, or even for, I, even without whips and stuff, is, is when we think repentance, it's I have to heap enough shame on me until I earn some kind of forgiveness from God. And the language of repentance is simply just, it's turning. It's changing your mind. It's acknowledging, oh, I'm going the wrong way, and I'm going to turn around. Uh, this week with my, my wife, Erin, and our little daughter, Emma, gone, I had a lot of free time. And so with a handful of different guys from the church, I got to go see some movies, which I rarely get to do. Um, and so over at Westfield, um, I got to go see 1917 uh, in the big, like, Dolby IMAX. Um, and then I went and saw Star Wars again a couple days later. And I wasn't planning on it, but then I went and saw Parasite at Culver City. I've just seen so many movies. Dude, Parasite was so good. Uh, anyway, um, so I, why, why we're talking about movies. Um, at both Culver Steps and at Westfield, their parking garage is like 500 feet down into the ground. And so when you try to like put in your directions of where you're going to go, you have no reception. So like, okay, I guess I'll just drive out and wait until my phone connects, and then I'll, I'll get my directions. And so I had put in the map. Um, okay, I'm going here, um, and I come out, and I start driving, and I'm waiting for it to connect, and then it connects, bing, oh, I'm going the wrong way. I need to make a U-turn. Okay, 
click over, get over a couple lanes, turn around, and now I'm going the other way. That's repentance. <laughs> it's, we make this big deal about like, we've got like 40 lashes to prove it. All repentance is, is just a simple acknowledgement. The way that I'm going isn't gonna get me where I need or want to go. And so I just need to turn around. And, and that's it. And so what you see within Israel is, is no, no browbeating, no, no shame casting. It's simply they're acknowledging, man, we want to see this new exodus, this movement of God. John the Baptist is here to say that it's almost here. And so in light of that reality, in light of the new thing that God's ushering in, you know what, this part of my life, this isn't going to lead me the direction that I want to go. And so go the other way. With this baptism being a public proclamation of that repentance. Look, I'm acknowledging that my, my thoughts, the way that I think about people, that that, that, that that is not in light of the new exodus and what God's coming to do. And so I need a, I need a baptism. I need a sign of the forgiveness and washing of, of what is true in with my relationship to God. Or maybe, you know, that, that my relationship with, with this person or the way that I've been conducting myself with my resources and my money or the way I've thought about my time or my inherent selfishness or my idolatry. I've been worshiping some other God on the side. If there's a new exodus on the way, I want to prepare myself for that thing. And so confession and repentance are what's called for. What's crazy is that we don't see much baptism before John the Baptist shows up throughout Israel's history. We had ceremonial washings for priests, um, but, but even like, you know, Gentiles becoming God-fears, big proselytes becoming part of the, there's no, John the Baptist seems to be kind of the first guy who's doing something like this. And what's crazy is this continues into the Christian tradition. In the book of Acts, shortly after the resurrection and then ascension of Jesus, uh, Peter gives an awesome sermon where 2,000 people become a Christian in one day. How's that? Any day I feel like I have a bad sermon, I'm like, 2,000 people didn't become saved. So I'm never going to top that. Um, so he gets to the end of his sermon talking about the resurrection, what Jesus has done, the new exodus that's here. And all the crowd kind of goes, what do we do about that? And Peter just goes, repent and be baptized. And so you have all of these people that then now as a proclamation of not just repentance of sin and confession, but also identification with Jesus, baptism becomes that first sign and proclamation of repentance and commitment to the way of Jesus. That continues today. And there's more that's happening within baptism. And we'll get to that in a minute with Jesus. So all this to say, like Israel, the invitation for you and me is that this new exodus is something that is not only connected and started 2,000 years ago, but is ongoing right now. And, and it's a new exodus that's available to you and me right here, right now, and in new ways. That the new exodus is not something that simply we get baptized or repent once, and then we're in. But that the whole Christian life is, is, is this repentance, is this continual, oh, I'm going the wrong way again. I, I keep going, oh, oh yeah, I, I was going right for a second, but now I'm, I need to go left again. This is the whole Christian life. And so the invitation as we go into 2020 is for Christian or not, whatever, whoever you may be here, is what this is inviting us into is there's a new way that God is breaking into creation that has been inaugurated by his son, Jesus Christ, that that has happened and is ongoing happening. And there's an invitation for that to happen more than it is happening right now within your life. And the way to prepare for that is confession and repentance, is to own up to the ways that you've been living, the ways that you've been going, that, have, that aren't leading in the destination that you want. There's a, there's a simple invitation, and we'll have time today to spend time there, but I would just begin thinking and praying. What is that? 
Where's the new way that God's wanting to break into my life, new Exodus territory that he wants to claim and capture and move me in? And what does it call me out of? It's not you trying harder. It's first and foremost just a resignation. I'm going the wrong way. John the Baptist points to the fact that this baptism, this work of confession, is not simply for John. He's simply a signpost to someone coming, like the prophet Isaiah, like the, the, the prologue in the sky that we just read, is that John's whole purpose is not for himself, but to make way for someone that's greater than him. Look at what he does when he says in verse 7 and 8, he was preaching, saying, after me comes one who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. For John, what he acknowledges is the need in preparing the way is not simply just so that John can be a prophet, but so that God can come in in a new way. John points to someone coming who's going to be mightier than I, someone stronger than me, pointing to someone who's greater than him, someone I'm not even able to undo his sandals, which is like a weird thing in our day because we wear flip-flops. We just like kick them off. Um, but back in the day, this, is, this was the work of the lowest of servants. And so here you have the prophet supreme, the one that all the prophets have been building up to. And he says, there's going to be someone that's mightier than me. And in light of that, mightier than all the prophets that have come yet. Someone greater than me, so greater than me that I shouldn't even take off his shoes and wash his feet. And someone that's better than me. Someone who's able to baptize, not just in water, but in the spirit. John is acknowledging that part of repentance is not just acknowledging that I'm going the wrong way, but acknowledging my need for someone who's mightier, someone who's greater, someone who's better that can actually lead me in a new way. This pointing to being better than me is, again, connecting to the, the prophets and what they were waiting for. Ezekiel 36, uh, you'll see on the slides, where the prophet speaks on behalf of God of what God will do. And he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Here's language of new Exodus. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And so there's this washing of water, but I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put not just a new spirit, but my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. There's new Exodus language here, and the mark of the new Exodus is this work of the spirit that not just brings people through the water and we get like the forgiveness, I'm gonna try to do better now, but actually a spirit who empowers us to be the people of God that we always knew that we should be. And so the question with the prophet supreme here saying things like this, pointing to prophecies like this, is what we see in Ezekiel and what we see in this preparing the way of the Lord is it's clear that what John the Baptist thinks is he's preparing the way for God himself to come. Saying the one who's going to baptize in spirit, who's the one that says he will do that? It's the Lord. It's the God of Israel. It's the creator God. And so he's anticipating that someone that's going to come greater than the prophet supreme is going to be God himself, who's better and greater and mightier. And he's able to baptize not just in water, but in spirit. And he's going to lead his people in a new exodus. And then who, who walks on the scene? 
verse 8 or 9. In those days, Jesus came to Nazareth at Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. So you see, all of this anticipation, all of the expectation, all of the preparing was God's going to come. God's going to come. The Lord's going to come. He's going to baptize in a new way. He's going to do something incredible. And then who walks on the scene? It's, you know, Jesus. You know, what we talked about is Josh, you know, carpenter's kid. He walks down the way. In Mark's gospel, it's, it's interesting how, how just plain it almost seems. There's no thundering, you know, da, 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 here comes Jesus walking it, you know. He just, he appears on the scene, he walks on the scene. It becomes clear that what Mark's pointing us to is that this way that we're waiting for, the way that God is going to come and lead a new exodus, the way that God's going to show up, is that it's Jesus is the one who's come to do that. That God's going to meet us in the wilderness. God's going to lead us through the Jordan. And who shows up in the wilderness? Who shows up in the Jordan River? It's Jesus. John prepares the way, and the way shows up. Back to Eugene Peterson's quote, the arrival of Jesus is the revealing of the way, not just that God comes to us, but Jesus is also revealing the way that we exist and be on the way. This way of the new exodus, this way that we come to God, the way that God, this is all what's wrapped up and happening when Jesus walks on the scene. All the expectation and the anticipation is somehow met here in this seemingly normal guy who gets in line, walks out into the Jordan, meets John the Baptist. Hey, it's my cousin. Mom told me that you're going to do some really crazy stuff, but I guess if you want to get baptized. And that's the question right there. Why does Jesus get baptized? How many of you reading the, the passage this week had that question? So Jesus, who throughout the New Testament we claim is is perfect and without sin, he gets in the water for baptism, which this baptism is located as one for confession and repentance and forgiveness of sins. What does Jesus need forgiveness of? Is it just him getting like a, you know, just in case? There's been different things that this could be. Um, David Garland gives the best, I think. There's different, different opinions. This is mine. I think David's right. Um, this is my slide. This is so good. Jesus did not come to purify himself of sin in his baptism, but to identify with sinful people. He accepted John's repentance baptism as God's means for restoring Israel. In this light, the baptism of Jesus and baptism in general is not a private act for private spiritual gain, but an acceptance of membership into the historical daily. Does Mir say daily? Why does mine say daily? Historical community. Typos. Historical community of God and a participation in the continuing narrative of God's unfolding process. What Jesus shows up and does is he gives an identification with those who are repentant sinners, not with perfect people, but with people who acknowledge their need for a new way. And by entering into the Jordan, like all of the Israelites before him walking through the Jordan as the new Exodus was kind of coming to a head, is here you have Jesus entering into the river, identifying with repentant sinners. When we were praying for a gathering, Theo, uh, he, he quoted in prayer that Jesus, when he arrives, he says that, uh, that, you know who needs a physician and a doctor? It's not the really healthy people, it's the sick people. And I came to be a doctor, not for the healthy, not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. And here you have in his baptism, the great doctor walks into, walks into the room. 
and he identifies and he meets and he is with sinful, not perfect people, but people who know they need a doctor. And what's so interesting about what happens in Jesus' baptism is when he baptized, when he gets baptized, something happens that didn't happen for everybody else. What happens? Look with me in verse 10. So Jesus gets baptized, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he sees the heavens being ripped under, torn asunder, as older translations have, being torn open, and then the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So these things, when Jesus gets baptized, what happens? The heavens are torn open. What's happening there? Isaiah 64, 1. When the prophet Isaiah, who Mark just told us, you guys need to you know, read him to know what's going on, he prays and asks God, when will you rend the heavens? When will you tear open the heavens? It's the same language here that's used. And come down and lead your people in a new exodus. And Jesus kind of winks and says, right now. And then the spirit comes down and rests on him. This Isaiah 61, there it is again, waiting for this Messiah who would come and lead a new exodus and he would have the Spirit resting upon him. All of the prophecies of Isaiah and all the other prophets are coming to a head now. Now, what's up with the dove? Why a dove? That's become like there's whole denominations now that have doves. You ever wondered that? Why is the Spirit a dove? I don't know. Um, here's, here's some of my best guesses. Um, one is uh, there is a um, Babylonian um, kind of translation and commentary on Genesis 1-1 or 1-2, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the Spirit was hovering over the waters. There's this Babylonian uh, Talmud. It's a commentary and translation that it refers to a dove. The spirit being a dove is the language that it gives for hovering over the waters. So that could be one thing. Uh, others have argued that what's happening here is um, emperors from Rome, whenever they got their portrait done, they would have an eagle over them. That was the sign of Rome, like a big, bad eagle, right? And Jesus comes up, and what's resting over him? It's not the eagle of Rome, but it's the dove of peace. Oh, come on. I'm going to sit on that all day. And so whether it's uh, pointing back to Genesis 1-2 or something that's getting at the heart of Rome, whatever it might be, the reality is we have the spirit hovering over him like new creation, and we have a sign and signal of what kind of king he's going to be. He's not going to be like Caesar. He's going to be a king of peace. And the Spirit saturates and rests upon him in the thing that all the prophets were waiting for. And then finally, as this all happens, this voice speaks for the first time in over 400 years where the prophets were regularly speaking on behalf of God. And then after Malachi, things go silent and God doesn't speak. 400 years go by and they're waiting for new exodus. They're waiting for the voice of God. They're waiting for a new prophecy. And then here at the baptism... God speaks for the first time in 400 years, and his first words are, this is my beloved son, in him I'm well pleased. And what does God speak here, this son of God from last week? Here he is, my son, the one who I am intimately know, the one who is my image, the one who shares my work, and the one who I have given the inheritance of eternal life. He is my son. He is my beloved. Where does that word show up? Back in Genesis, Abraham and Isaac and the weirdest family vacation ever. When they go up the mountain and they find out there's no sacrifice, you're it, bud. And then an angel shows up, and there's a sacrificial son. My beloved son. So there's image and intimacy and vocation. There's a sacrificial son. 
And then finally, this language of in you I'm well pleased is again back to Isaiah 42, where he talks about his appointed servant, his one who he goes, you are my representative to the people, and you I'm well pleased. You now have all of this coming together where God's quoting himself. You guys want to know who this is? This is my son. He is the true human, the one who is my image, who shares in my work, who I intimately know, and he intimately knows me, and he And he also is my beloved son, the one who's going to be sacrificed. And even more than that, he is my appointed servant. Listen to him. All of this happens at this. It's incredible mosaic of who Jesus is. And even in the Father speaking a message of love through the Spirit on the Son, in baptism, we get this incredible picture of who God is. Have you ever wondered what God was doing before creation? Right? If he's eternal, like what was God doing for the, time, the, the eternity before he created? Who is God in his very essence? Because we call God creator, but we only know God is creator because he created something, right? Who in essence is God? Because creator, if he was only creator in his essence, then that means he didn't exist until he created. If he's judge, then that means that, well, he wasn't really a judge until he started judging. The New Testament makes the claim in 1 John that God is love. Not just that God has love or that God is loving, but that in his essence, he is love. And we see this here in Jesus' baptism. In John 17, Jesus said, before the foundations of the world were laid, the Father, you were loving me in and through the Spirit. And here you have in baptism this picture of the God who's existed throughout all time before you and I were anything, before even the atoms and cells that would one day lead to us being us before any of that was there. The God has eternally been a community of the Father loving the Son in and through the Spirit. This is what we mean when we say God is love. It's not just that he has love or that he is loving. In his essence and nature, he is a Father loving a Son, loving the Spirit, and that that loving work of the Spirit, that Son and Father, are so much, so unified in love that they are individual persons and yet at the same time one God. This is the Christian tradition of the Trinity. And, and we have this showing up here in the baptism. And what's so crazy is that God, who is the community of love, shows up in Jesus, and what does he do? He gets into the water with repentant, sinful people. He identifies with them. There's solidarity with them. He meets them where they are in their repentance. This is the profound movement of what's going on in the life of Jesus is not that this community of love shows up to say, hey, you be loving well enough and try hard enough and then maybe we'll let you hang out with us for a little bit. But this community of love is so incredible that it shows up in the life and the person and work of Jesus Christ and invites us into this divine dance of delight with one another, of loving and delighting in the Son through the Spirit and through the Son delighting in the Father as the Father delights in us through the Son and through the Spirit we're unified into Jesus. Like this is the whole crazy cosmic thing of what we talk about what's going on within New Exodus. Far more than just getting out of Egypt, let my people go, right? Returning back to our true home, which is God himself. We could go on forever, but you run out of words when you start to talk about relationship with the divine community that is love itself. 
The scandal of Christianity is that what we find in Jesus' baptism and all of his life, his death and resurrection, is that this community of love through Jesus has chosen to identify not with perfect people, but with repentant people. People that acknowledge I have not been loving and I need someone or something not just to exemplify the way, but to lead me in a new exodus, to make me this sort of person of love. And what's so profound is that for those of us who enter into the water through baptism or each week through repentance or each moment in repentance, each day, when our lives become the sort of people where we have identified and allowed the solidarity of Jesus to become an identity that he has over us, when we start becoming followers of the way, the profoundly insane thing is that what was spoken over Jesus in his baptism is spoken over you and me right now. N.T. Wright. Uh, my favorite, favorite, favorite. He writes, <clears throat> God looks, this is in that devotional that I recommended, um, so you should buy it. God looks on every Christian and says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. Seems impossible, especially to people who've never had parents like this, but it's true. God looks at us and says, you are my dear, dear child, and I'm delighted in you. He says it now, and he says it forever. Regardless of the ups and downs, regardless of life or death, that we, along with Michaela, along with everyone in this world who is invited to come to Jesus, might hear the voice of the Father through Jesus Christ and the imparting baptism of his Holy Spirit that comes with a proclamation of faith. You are my beloved child, and I am delighted in you. You notice how Jesus gets this before he's done anything? If you were going to place, where, when does God kind of give his final thumbs up on Jesus and says, this is the guy that I'm delighted in, this is the one that you should listen to, this is the one that I love. I mean, you'd, you'd probably be, you know, maybe at his crucifixion, right? Or at his resurrection, like, poof, kicks the stone out, and it's like, this is my son, check him out, right? We, would, we tend to place that here, and Jesus receives it, before he's done anything. And so, on one hand, we want to acknowledge that Jesus belongs to this divine community of eternal love, and yet Jesus is also fully man. And in this portrait gives us a, this is what it means to be human. To belong to the community of love does not come after a life of selfless loving, but to receive love, and then this is what kicks Jesus off into his ministry. It's receiving that, that he's delighted in me that leads Jesus to be able to like beat the devil next week when we come back. It's what leads to him to be able to heal people with an unclean spirit, that this spirit with him and love that's over him is what propels him into the next year. Into the next year. Well, not maybe for him three years, but it's what propels you and me as well. To be a Christian is to be a follower of the way of Jesus, not just where Jesus is going to heaven when I die, or if you have read the New Testament, new heavens and new earth. But rather what's going on here is to follow this way of Jesus, is to walk in this way of love. Not just that I am loving, but I find myself encapsulated in the divine dance of a community of love that has nothing to do with whether or not I've earned it, but everything to do with the fact that I am its beloved. 
This is what it means to be a Christian. So to follow Jesus in his way of life is to repent from our ways of selfishness and pride and deceit and hiding and manipulation, whatever gets in the way of being the sort of loving person that we see in Jesus Christ. To acknowledge that the, the core goal of humanity, of what it means to be you, that if you have figured out anything in your life, that this is it, is to be loved by God and to love others like that. And in Jesus Christ, we find the way that that happens. This is what it means for him to be the way. And this can only come from someone, as John said, who is mightier, greater, and better than you and me, who can actually kickstart our broken hearts to do it. And so the invitation today for you and me as we go into 2020 is to follow Jesus to prepare your heart for this next year. This may be, for some of you, repent. And again, I don't mean come up here and, you know, I don't know, beat yourself over the head with someone's guitar. Like, it's just simply like, you may just come and just pray. You may, we have, you know, the carpets to kneel, to go to someone on the prayer team in a minute and just to go and say, you know what? There's been this area of my life that I've either compartmentalized, I have willfully hidden or I'm just now acknowledging and seeing is here, and I need, I need someone better, greater, and stronger, mightier that can, that can lead me in a new way. And to acknowledge that Jesus is the one to do that, and he delights to do it. The invitation, just to consider, is, is what sort of person are you becoming? What kind of way are you living? And could it be that there's something better in front of you today?